Howdy, Green Rush Nation. Producer Shea Gunther here with a quick programming announcement. Unfortunately, we do not have a regular episode of the Green Rush for you, but we do have a pretty good replacement with this week's episode of my podcast, Marijuana Today, in which KCSA's own Chris Crane jumps in and dives into the latest cannabis news with Ben, Heather, and Brian, all of his fellow hosts of Marijuana Today. We will be back with a regular Green Rush next week. Hello and welcome to episode 390 of Marijuana Today. It's Brian Bino Adams and I am your host for this week. I'm an artist, activist, instructor, former executive director of Cleveland Normal, and the director of education at the Harrington Institute. What's happening, Marijuana Nation? You all know how we get down when we get serious about marijuana business and politics. This week, we will talk about what the holdup is in Congress when it comes to changing marijuana laws and how the great resignation has affected the cannabis job market and a whole lot more. Much like community organizing, I could not do this alone. So per usual, I am joined by the best cannabis minds in our industry and movement. With me this week is an all-star lineup of contributors to Marijuana Today. It's an all-hosts show. <laughs> Woo! Yeah! Yeah! yeah. <laughs> 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 little sitcom. Ow! Uh, <laughs> first up, <laughs> out of Chicago, uh, Chicago, Illinois, that is, <laughs> the, this is a longtime cannabis activist and OG to the show. He's the director of ca uh, cannabis development for KCSA Strategic Communications and former president of Forefront Ventures. It's Chris Crane, y'all. Hey, hey, Brian, good to be on with you. I gotta say, you you do you you do a really good hello. Really impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank. You. I practice. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to meet you, finally, Chris. Next, out of Portland, Maine, we have a cannabis advocate and senior licensing manager at a multi-state operator. You know, Cure Leaf. It's Heather Sullivan. Greetings, Heather. Hello. How are you doing, Brian? I'm good. Glad to hear it. So I'm cold today. We are, we're going to hit, um, so this week we're expecting a bit of a cold snap here in Maine, and uh, it should, we should hit around uh, one of these days this week, it's going to be seven degrees. So burr, um, I'm really excited to spend a little time with you guys maybe heat up my brain a little bit on this week's episode really looking forward to uh to connecting with uh you guys uh it's been a hot minute since i think all of us um have had an opportunity to virtually be together so i'm really looking forward to today's show oh yeah and finally Coming to us today from Oakland, California, we have CEO of Vertosa. Who could it be but Ben Larson, the conscious capitalist himself? Good to see you again, Ben. What up, Brian? Happy New Year, man. Good to be here. 
Hey, hey. Feliz Año Nuevo. Happy New Year. Uh, if you're holidays like me, you'll probably still be working on last year's resolutions. Don't worry. Persistence is key. Yes, yeah, so, so is Congress, right? This- so. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's the motto. So basically what I want to do to kick off this week, uh, this is a special show. We got some big dogs in the house. And and basically there's an article from Newsweek that I ran up, stumbled upon uh, pointing out the hesitancy of federal action on cannabis law reform. Uh, and basically they're putting them on blast here in this Newsweek article highlighting that despite multiple proposals, there is a lack of effort to get something to the desk of President Joe Biden. Now, we have bipartisan support on the cannabis issue. We talked about that probably every week on this show, right? And even with a majority Democratic leadership at this current time, once again, potential cannabis regulations have not been prioritized. According to the U.S. Census, there are about 145 million people who live in a state that has legalized cannabis. Almost 20 states have legalized cannabis for adult use. And don't even get me started on the fact that we're sitting at almost 40 medical marijuana states. Chris, with our green lit state count at an all time high and public opinion to boot, when does the federal legislative status quo adjust to compensate? I mean, whenever the Democrats can get their shit together, um, I, I, it's it, it's really I mean, it's really it's it's really that, that's really the challenge right now. I mean, the Democrats control the House, the Senate, the White House for the first time since 2009, 2010. They have one more year in control of of uh, unified control of, of D.C. Right. The Democrats are I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say the Democrats are going to lose control of the House. Uh, next year, right? It, it's almost certain. Just redistricting alone um, will give Republicans enough seats to take control of the House. So the Democrats will actually have to do better in uh, 2022 than they did in 2020 in order to keep the House, which in an off-year election um, or in a, in, a, in a midterm election uh, is basically unprecedented, right? Outside of 2020. Uh, to coming off of 9-11, right? Every year that the president's party loses seats in the House, um, they will probably lose the Senate, um, although uh, they have a better chance at holding the Senate than the House um, uh, just because of the, the map. Uh, the, the Republicans are playing a lot more defense in, uh, in this coming election. But either way, the Democrats are going to lose one of the houses almost certainly, if not both. And they, you know, they've had a two-year window to get something done, and so far in the first year, they've done nothing. Um, I, I wrote I wrote a column about this in Forbes uh, a couple weeks ago uh, about uh, how the Democrats have basically gotten nothing done and have not been able to get out of their own way. Um, and so what, what's happening though is there's a couple of things at play. Um, one is just simply the way that Democrats govern when they're in power, and this has been a major source of frustration as someone who's been involved in policy for 25 years or so, um, which is that you know when the Republicans get in power and they control everything, Republicans govern on the offense, meaning that they recognize that they have a limited window in power to accomplish what they want to accomplish, and they try to push through everything that they that they want to get done, right, potential elector, uh, uh, electoral ramifications be damned. The Democrats 
tend to govern on the defensive. Um, they're always worried about the next election. And so they're worried about doing something that might impact their prospects of holding on in the next election, not realizing that they're going to lose anyway. Right. It doesn't matter if they do something or not. The Republicans are going to paint them how they're going to paint them, no matter what they do. So they may as well get done what they actually want. So that's one problem. The bigger problem, though, is infighting among the Democrats about this issue. And, you know, that's something where there's a lot more nuance and there's a little bit more understanding uh, because I am sympathetic to the arguments on both sides of the issue within the Democratic Party. Um, and, and those issues are you've got a contingent of Democrats, um, largely at this point led by Cory Booker in the Senate and, and joined by uh, uh, Senators Wyden and most importantly, Senate Majority Leader Schumer, who have basically sort of laid down the line saying we're not going to do uh, piecemeal reform, in particular banking reform, which is the which is the bill that could actually pass um, without trying to do full comprehensive reform. Um, and the, the rationale being, of course, that banking doesn't do enough to help out the communities that have been most disproportionately impacted by cannabis. The argument is largely that it's going to make a bunch of rich, uh, you know, rich white uh, ca cannabis company owners even richer. Um, and so we're not going to do that without going for the full shebang. Um, and I understand that argument. I'm very sympathetic to that argument. Um, however, there is the political reality that the Senate rules currently require 60 votes to pass anything. Uh, and there are not 60 votes to pass comprehensive reform in the Senate. Um, and unfortunately, uh, and this is a knock on some of the more moderate Democrats, moderate to conservative Democrats, there are not 50 votes in the U.S. Senate to pass comprehensive reform. So even if you could get it done through reconciliation, which you can't anyway, but even if you could, um, the 50 votes are not there. Manchin will not vote for it. Gene Shaheen from New Hampshire will not vote for it. Uh, John Tester from Montana will not vote for it. Um, and there are a number of others who have said that they're still undecided. So there are not 50 votes. There probably isn't one Republican vote in the Senate right now. Maybe Rand Paul, but we might get Rand Paul but Rand Paul is not going to vote for the version of the, of, the, of the bill that Senator Schumer has put out there because the tax rates are too high and there's too much government regulation. So like, we probably don't have a single Republican vote. So the question is, do we get anything done? And the low hanging fruit right now is still banking reform that has the votes to pass in both houses. Um, and I am very concerned that we're going to end this two year window of unified Democratic control, having passed nothing. And when the Republicans take back over next year, right, comprehensive reform fully off the table, like Nancy Mace's bill, Representative Nancy Mace, Republican of South Carolina, her bill's terrific. Um, I actually think it's a much better bill in, in most ways than what Senator Schumer has proposed. Um, and that's, you know, as somebody that, that leans towards the Democrats, it's pretty embarrassing, um, but, it's, but it's the truth. Um, but she's not in leadership, right? She's a freshman member. Um, she has no real sway within her party. Kevin McCarthy is not going to take up full ca full cannabis reform. So maybe we get banking in, in divided government, maybe. Um, but if the Democrats get, can't get anything done in this two-year winter that they have, shame on them, and they don't deserve to hold you know, to, to continue to hold the House. Fire. Bars. Um, seriously, I couldn't have said it better. I think the Democrats seem to always do this, right? They, they have a chance to speak to their constituency and they they drop the ball every time it's a shame that that a lot of these efforts were republican led uh when we even look at back at um 
you know, Roy Barker Farr, right? You, you, said, you know, yeah. we had two Republicans bring that in and 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 uh, sneak well, Farr, something Farr was in. A, Farr was a Democrat. Um, um, that was yeah, that was bipartisan. But Rohrbacher really held the water on that. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought Farr was a Republican as well. So I thought they were both out of California there. Um, yeah, if you want to go all the way back, that was yeah. actually the Hinchy Rohrbacher Amendment. Um, in 2001, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. Hinchy was being a Democrat from upstate New York, um, and Farr took over for him when Hinchy stepped down. There it is. See, so, but yeah, you know, you look at that, and, and I, I really wish that they wouldn't, you know, sort of put themselves, make themselves the enemy in this situation like, like it typically is. Um, Heather, what do you think about this? Uh, what, what, what must be done? Um, despite uh, the Democrats sort of shooting themselves in the foot here? So I think that, you know, if I could inform what should be done, uh, we wouldn't have this problem. So I think think that's a little bit of a tough one for me. You know, I look back um, historically, like, unfortunately, I think in a lot of ways, Something drastic has to happen within this country for to move this forward. So you have to there has to be a reason at this point. So it's not just happening because people think it's a good idea or oh, it's unfair that, you know, the war on drugs, you know, everyone agrees war on drugs really was a failure. We've got full agreement there um, for the most part except for the most conservative uh, politicians out there. Uh, we've got um, Plans that have been put out, that have been put forth from both parties um, with differences and similarities in those plans. No one seems to be kind of jumping on either one to get this done. We've had the the tries, the ways that we've tried to push forward with any meaningful reform, whether that's full-scale legalization uh, bills, whether that's banking bills, whether that's, hey, let's attach it to this or let's try to attach it to that. Fail, 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 fail. So what do I think really needs to happen? See change. That is the only thing that I envision will actually ultimately push this forward. Yes, I think federal legalization is coming at some point. What will it take? It will be something drastic happening probably in the economy uh, that then says, oh, we really need this tax revenue now on like and my cynical sides coming out. But to me, something of that nature is what will need to happen. If we couldn't get it done during this time, I can't imagine how we would get it done moving forward. The only people that are focused on cannabis reform are us people who are actually in the cannabis industry until some, until it becomes, way more beneficial to somebody else bigger than our industry. I think that it's just, um, it's just a waiting game now. And I would argue that I think everything Chris said was accurate, that we will not be, that we will be looking at, uh, a very different looking Congress next year. Um, and I think we'll be looking at a very different, um, executive body in a couple of years. And that concerns me a great deal. I think we all need to continue to be out there advocating and speaking. And um, one of the one of the positive things, I think, though, is that our industry is starting to make some pretty serious strides in things like generating more tax revenue than alcohol sales in certain states. Um, Cannabis is becoming a top crop in the country. And I think stuff like that will help raise our profile. So keep buying weed. Absolutely. 
the, the, the back door entrance every single time. <laughs> Just the, the public leads this issue. You know, the, the lawmakers are, uh, are infuriating. They, they're always behind when it comes to actual public view. You know, Chris, you mentioned Montana. They they just legalized. Uh, they just started open the doors for uh, adult use, right? So and that now they have they, you know they don't have the support of the actual you know folks that can help change laws, uh, but despite the people there, uh, well, it's crazy. It's it's, cra- it's crazy that there's any U.S. senators that represent a legal state that don't support legalization federally, right? They're just Absolutely. not representing the will of their people. That's right. That's right. And yes, uh, you're absolutely right about far Democratic leader there. And 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 that was 2014 on on a show in the past. I said it was 2013. So I want to correct myself there too. 2014, Roy Bakker. Uh, ben, <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what's up, man? You're you're in the thick of this. You're you're in a big big cannabis state uh, out in mm-hmm. Cali. Uh, and I've never been. I want to go, but um, you got to come, man. <laughs> so got to set that up for me. Uh, what's the what's it looking like there uh, as far as support goes? What what sort of influence can we get from the the West Coast? Oh, you know, it's a little bit different out here. We've we've been kind of pseudo legal for for decades now, right? And so it's just that consistent pressure and and the adaptability of of the operators in the space just playing what if, with whatever rules are 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 cast down around them, unfortunately. Uh you know, a, a couple of things like, you know, Chris used the word embarrassing, and I, I think that's the, the best way to kind of contextualize the, the democratic effort at the federal level, um, especially with like a freshman as, as Rep- Representative Mace coming out with a just a common sense uh, law or, you know, set of rules that kind of just immediately make a lot more sense, right? And you know, we've seen how long it's taken the FDA to kind of respond to the, the, the farm bill. And if we put legalization in their camp, like how long after legalization, so to speak, is it going to take for us to be in a federally legal state? Like it's 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 absurd uh, to see the, the amount of effort that goes into these comprehensive bills when all we know is that comprehensive kills everything that the Democrats are speaking that they want to save, right? When we're seeing that in California, the rules are so hard uh, to follow uh, that it's just making it entirely impossible to run effective businesses in California. So yeah, to Heather's point, we're we're creating far more tax revenue uh, than the alcohol industry because they're charging us more. <laughs> right. And it's like, you know, I, I pointed this out in a previous episode, like that, you know. 330 some odd million dollars, uh, you know, attributed to alcohol uh, taxes last year. And that's how much the cannabis industry is charged for a single quarter in being a fifth of the size. So we're like a, you know, 20 X, you know, outsized on the, on the tax. And it's, it's making it impossible. You know, we, we spend so much money on taxes, but not just that trying to figure out how to pay taxes, where to pay taxes, who to pay taxes, um, and all the other inefficiencies. So, yeah, uh, you know, very cynical when it comes to regulatory bodies and their ability to frame up this this cannabis industry. But, man, you know, consistent pressure is is the name of the game, and and we have to be patient. I mean, you know, to take a page out of uh, Max Simon's book. You know, he's just. I'm just happy to be having this conversation, right? We're happy to be having this conversation at the at the federal level. Uh, this is the first step. And 
It's going to take consistent and patient pressure to get it over the line. And then even after it's over the line, it's going to take patience and persistence to kind of keep, keep moving it forward. Because like I said, you know, CBD has been arguably legal since 2018 and it's still federally illegal to consume CBD in infused products. So what you're saying is cannabis law reform is like a, a New Year's resolution. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I'm saying our federal government's incompetent, but you know, <laughs> uh, I just saw. Oh no, that on the you face. won't get any qualms here from me from that. But um, <laughs> but they see they tend to keep putting this on the back burner like a New Year's resolution. Is my point. They don't they don't ever address it to, to, in the proper way. They they got that gym membership, but they just still don't have the abs. And and that you know to your to your point on on you know the consistency the persistence uh, this this next article from the Chicago Tribune uh, from Robert Chanick reported that adult use cannabis sales uh, doubled the total more than doubled the total from 2020 and this is in Illinois uh, when we look at uh, 1.38 billion uh, sales. Uh, you know, cannabis being much being sold in 2021. So that's interesting to me because that number doesn't even include medical, right? Uh, according to this uh, article, these are the types of gains that will continue if we all collectively embrace the end of cannabis prohibition. And that's on all fronts. Uh, I'm looking at you areas who like to opt out. Uh, it, it, it also seems like there is enough money to go around too, right? It's like, National legal cannabis sales exceeding more than $30 billion in 2022 based on headset projections, and that's a cannabis research firm uh, also stated in this article. Um, so, so I know I have to swing this back to Chris here. Um, as a cannabis entrepreneur with businesses in Illinois, or you represent businesses in Illinois, uh, are you optimistic that the recent growth is indicative of more positive outcomes on the legislative front? Is this an example of what we were talking about, of, of trying to continue to push that message? I mean, in Illinois specifically? Overall, I guess. In Illinois but, and overall. Yeah, I mean, I think in, I'm not really worried about Illinois in general. Um, there's been a lot of legislative support here in Illinois um, for a while now. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was the first state in the country to legalize via the legislature. Um, and, and, not, and not a lot of people would have predicted that, including, you know, on this show, we had a lot of predictions over the years about who was going to be the first state. It took a lot longer than we expected it to. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of people that thought it was going to be New Jersey or New York or Rhode Island or Vermont, um, right, states that have been talking about this for Connecticut and talking about this for years before there was a serious discussion about it, uh, about Illinois and Illinois, you know, uh, sort of jumped to the, to the head of the pack there. Um, so, you know, thankfully in Illinois, there's there's a lot of legislative support for legalization. There's a lot of legislative support for the industry, um, for social equity. Um, now, we could have a whole segment on the problems with the social equity rollout in Illinois, uh, which has been, which has not gone well. Um, but it was not, it was not for any lack of trying or lack of concern or care on the part of the legislature. Um, it was a, it was a problem with the way it was implemented. Um, not necessarily the problem with the way that it was written. Um, but that's a whole other segment. So, you know, Illinois, I think it's a really good state for folks to look at, um, in terms of, uh, how a legislature can be beneficial to the industry. Also, some real lessons to be learned 
about you know things not things that, you know, things things that you shouldn't do um, that other you know other states can learn from. In particular, you know severely restricted limited licensing. Um, now, Illinois didn't set out to have severe restricted licensing, right? The idea here was let's take the existing medical infrastructure, which was quite limited, but it was limited because it was a really small medical program by design. Very, very, very few patients. You could not have had unlimited licensing with 40,000 patients in a state of 13 million people, which is what we had for 90% uh, of the medical program. Um, so the idea was let's take the infrastructure that exists, let's flip the switch, get them up and running as quickly as possible for adult use um, and then uh, and, and and you know start getting those ta that tax revenue in the doors immediately right start chipping away at the listed market um, by having legal market sales and then use that tax revenue to fund a new wave of licensing um, predominantly uh, it would predominantly be for social equity uh, applicants or licensees for people from communities that have been disproportionately impacted by prohibition. That part has not gone well, um, and it was an issue in the way they've done licensing. And so the state is still overly restrictive in terms of the number of licenses, which is why prices are too high in Illinois. And that's been the big problem, right? The prices are really, really high. Um, and so it's not, it's not chipping away at the illicit market as much as you would like, um, because those prices have stayed extremely high given the, the, the lack of available licenses, lack of, um, total cultivation infrastructure in the state, lack of dispensaries. Um, you know, and I say this is someone, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm obviously not with forefront full-time anymore. Um, but you know, we, we have a store, in Calumet City, which is right on the border of Indiana, um, like literally two minute drive from the border in a really good shopping location. The store does extremely well. The store could do a lot better if we could bring pricing down, um, which we can't because wholesale pricing is too high uh, in the state because that, that Northwest Indiana a contingent of customers and you know these border locations all over the country are a real thing um and and if 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 if, if nothing else i mean state legislature should be looking at what's happening at border stores and in, in places that border uh, illegal states um uh, particularly in or, you know on the, in the eastern border of oregon and and, and idaho where i mean those stores these tiny little towns there are just absolutely killing it uh with people coming in from from boise we could be doing better in the, it, it, on the border of Indiana, except those customers across the border, many of them would rather drive 45 minutes to an hour to Michigan where they can get products for half the price than drive five, 10 minutes into, in, into Illinois. Um, so that's a lesson to be learned from other states. But on the whole... Uh, right. I think the state's done a good job and I hope other state legislatures will will take note. And, and they have. Right. Since Illinois passed legalization, we've seen other state legislatures do it. The challenge now, I, don't, I think, is less with states that look like Illinois. Right. I mean, states that look like Illinois, like like New York, like New Jersey, you know, to a lesser degree, Connecticut. Right. Mo pretty much the Northeast and some of the Midwest. They're all legalizing. But those states are all controlled by Democrats. We need some Republican state legislatures to step up here, right? The Democrats are fucking this up at the at the federal level. They're not really messing it up that badly at the state level right now. Like it's all Democrat-led states that have passed legalization. We have not seen legalization passed through a Republican-led House of any state legislature yet, and that that still is a problem, right? That that needs to change. Yes, absolutely. Some great points there. And um, I can feel you on that border effect because um, I'm Ohio native myself. So we got Michigan right up north. Uh, that that Toledo, uh, I see you. <laughs> oh, yeah. So but those Michigan uh, Heather, border stores do very, very, very well. <laughs> absolutely. All the time. And and um, I've 
not uh, full disclosure, uh, you know, I know people that made the trip. Uh, Heather, <laughs> what are your thoughts on, you know, this growth, right? What does this mean for cannabis? Does this mean we're big? What, what's, 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 the, uh, what's the end game here? So uh, to Chris's point, I think first, you know, when you talk about the border state issue, we uh, in October had a uh, licensing lottery in the small town closest to uh, we uh, main shares border with New Hampshire. And so the town that uh, New Hampshire is a state that has not passed adult use. And frankly, they have a really shitty um, medical market as well, a, a very limited medical market as well. Um, and that particular um, licensing lottery generated um, over 400 over 400 applications for one slot in a small town in Maine. So what Chris is describing is 100% absolutely accurate. Um, you know, the valuation that's going into some of these locations is, is outrageous. I think, frankly, in a lot of cases, it's, it's overvalued. Um, I think that what I would like to see is I would like to more see a, um, a leveling of all this so that you're not seeing border states being uh, so much more valuable than a location that one might think would be a valuable location but isn't because of certain mm, legislative or regulatory restrictions. So if... Illinois did a little bit of a better job of um, opening up these new stores, uh, issuing more licenses, then that you would see a balance happening. And that's what I hope is going to happen within the industry. Um, but without uh, overlay of federal legalization, that's going to be really challenging to get to. Um, I work, I, I do my job in 23 different states. So I am one of the people that sees very clearly like how much of an impact the differences have in, in how you are able to do business. You know, it can be very challenging for a business to um, properly like plan for the future when states are acting so differently. So one of the things that I hope to see out of future federal legalization or one of the things that I hope to see as we move forward, particularly as we see more legislatures passing cannabis reform, is that instead of reinventing the wheel every single time, take what works from other states. Uh, I think we have a lot of work to do on the social equity side. We haven't figured that out yet. We haven't figured out how to best promote social equity in the state, uh, in each state. Um, that's why I'm personally like against social equity at the federal level. Cause I just see that as being a freaking disaster. I would be perfectly happy to see small availability of, of SBA resources to cannabis businesses, but some kind of real overlay where the federal, the feds who can't get out of their own way on almost every topic are then going to be like guiding how, individual states determine their um, social equity parameters is 
I think it's just a recipe for disaster. Um, I, I've been doing some social equity research. So I've actually done this um, project recently where I looked at the social equity programs in a variety of different states, not all the states, but I looked at them in a variety of different states. And even something so simple as defining what is a social equity applicant in each state, there's, there's very little consistency um, across the states. So my hope, I guess I would say, is that I'd like to see a gaining sense of consistency. And the only way that we can do that is to continue to see our industry grow, get bigger and bigger. We get more seats at the table um, with more traditional businesses. We start or we continue to bring in people from other industries to influence our industry. That's what I think, you know, short of federal legalization, that's how I see that we can continue to move things forward. I think that could work. I really do. Uh, uh, ben, you want to chime in on this? Uh, we're getting at the end of segment one. I want to get your thoughts on this, this whole money grab. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll probably try to keep it pretty short because if I start to talk too long, I get, uh, I get more riled up on, on this kind of stuff. But look, I mean yeah it's just you know there's so much effort trying to create a framework to get social equity uh applicants and and licensure uh done in these various jurisdictions and you know it feels like it's a trap because it's so overly regulated and so hard to actually make a successful business without you know making products that are twice what the they should be on in the market and it's just creating a really tough situation you know i i, I just it starts to feel like a, just a lot of lip service and virtue signaling at the end of the day, um, which I know that's not the intent by a lot of the advocates that are pushing for it. But when it gets through the filter of the government, like that's what what ends up happening. And now we're trying to like concentrate all this effort into a single industry that's being made to be phenomenally hard to operate in. And it's like I wish this much effort uh, was put in across the board in commerce for for social equity, you know. Uh, it's not just the cannabis industry that should shoulder, um, you know, the burdens of, of the missteps of, of our government in the past, right? It's like not everyone wants to operate in the cannabis industry. So why not put forth this much effort at the federal level for all the other industries that people can operate in? Um, and that's that's where I stand on that. So I, I agree with Heather. Like, it, it's just it's like totally mudding the waters uh, in this federal discussion. And and, yeah, we are approaching, you know, 20 states with the, uh, you know, a recreational legal you know market and 40 with medical. And I mean, why not incremental improvements? Why not provide banking and removing 280E and decriminalizing at the federal level and just let the states continue to do it because they have been, you know, and and just create the the ability for these states to start integrating to each other because that's going to be the hardest thing even if we do federally legalize like you know you you now have all these states that have run ahead and created their own rule sets and and now you're going to have to you know weave all that together and i, I think it's going to create a more and more complicated conversation especially when it comes to uh protecting some of these smaller businesses in in, in certain locales so yeah, I could go on and on, but you know, I, I I hope we do get to a state where we finally do realize that, hey, it's really hard to run a business in in this industry, and that even just a little bit of improvement on that through through federal banking, 
through decriminalization and removal of 280E, like those would be huge steps that would benefit everyone, especially the small business owner that is just trying to get by. If I if I could if I could add in on that because Ben, you raised a really awesome point and something that I've I've been talking about for a while that like. While I fully agree that, and I've advocated for many years, right, that the cannabis industry has an obligation, right, because of the historical wrongs to support social equity programs, right, to fund social equity programs, that the, we- that the, you know, the, the wealthier businesses in the industry need to be putting in money, whether it's voluntarily or whether they're obliged to do so by, um, you know, government programs to support uh, business owners from communities that have been, you know, historically uh, impacted by prohibition. I also don't think this should all fall on the cannabis industry because it's not the cannabis industry that was out there, you know, arresting you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of largely black and brown folks for you know the pre- for previous decades, right? These aren't the, the, these are not the people that were advocating for harsh uh, drug laws and harsh marijuana laws and harsh penalties. Like I would be perfectly fine saying, look, for every you know for every dollar that goes to a pri- you know that that, uh, that goes to a prison guards union, ten cents has to go to support a social equity program, right? Or you know all these or, or you know private prison companies or the you know or, or, I mean. I I don't know how you would do it, but like prosecutors bear a lot of blame here, right? Industries that have profited off of, uh, you know, off of off of criminalization and and the prison industry and the prison industrial complex and all that, like they should be putting money into community to 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 people that are coming from come, coming from these communities that want to start businesses, people who are coming from these communities who want to be involved in businesses, whether as an owner or need the training, you know, skills training to make them a be- a, a, a a more attractive empl- a, a higher or employee, um, or just putting money into the communities themselves for programs that impact everyone in the community, not just those involved in cannabis, because these communities have, have, have seen so much devastation due to the enforcement of of, of unfair, uh, the unfair enforcement of unfair marijuana laws, um, and that putting all of this onus on the cannabis industry and cannabis industry operators who were not the ones that, 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 carried out these historic injustices, right, isn't really fair. This should be shared by the people who are responsible for these injustices, and they should be supporting communities and the people from those communities who want to be involved in the industries, as well as the rest of the industry should be supporting it. Well, and the the other thing that the industry should not be shouldering is further policing, because Absolutely. the amount of policing, and in this, you know, speaking to Nancy Mace's bill as well. That's my problem with, um, with Mace's bill, honestly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, we already know that so much, uh, uh, you know, capital goes into policing marijuana usage, right? And just transferring that to whatever you think uh, is needed to police a regulated system. Like, it's it's unfair to say that, oh, because we're going to legalize you, like, we're going to need more funds for the police force. Like, it's... It's sickening. No, they need yeah. less funds. We're taking away crimes. Like they don't, they don't need more money. I agree with you, and that is the real problem. Mace's bill. I did not mean to imply by any means that Mace's bill is even close to perfect. I just think on the whole, it's better than mm-hmm. Schumer's than Schumer's bill. Oh no, we we got your point on that for sure. It it it, it's, it is embarrassing that that her bill, despite the flaws, is still better than uh, Uncle Chuck's. But um, I think that's uh, where we can end. Uh, segment one folks a lot of a lot of good fire on the mic right here and um, when we come back 
we'll discuss the national cannabis job market as it relates to the great resignation, as it's called, and tap into what's going on in the state of Maine. Heather, I'm looking at you. But, but first, here's producer Shay Gunther with a word from our sponsors. We're very thankful to have the support of our friends over at Hedgerow Analysis. If your legal marijuana company needs location-specific data-centered projections to help you plan and grow your business, look no further than Hedgerow Analysis. They have all kinds of fancy computer models backed up by smart blocks of relevant data to help you work out things like where the best place to build your dispensary would be. Or maybe you need help citing a distribution network to ensure maximum profitability for a delivery service. Whatever your location-based strategic problems are, it's likely that Hedgerow Analysis can help you solve them. Pop over to hedgerowanalysis.com to learn more about the company's capabilities and to get in touch. That's hedgerowanalysis.com. As people transitioned into working from home or quitting their jobs entirely, whether it be from coronavirus related uh, or simply a matter of self-worth realization, like literal self-worth, like how much am I worth? How much should you pay me? More, in fact. In an article from Cannabis Business Times, contributor Eric Sandy weighs in on how the cannabis industry was and is being affected by this massive surge in resignations. Apparently, more people quit their jobs than ever before the last few years, but it appears as though cannabis jobs are on a steady uptick. Uh, This article references, uh, the Cannabis Business Time article references Leafly's 2021 job report, And obviously, we've talked about that a little bit on this show, and you've probably heard elsewhere, a whopping 321,000 workers um, are are having pretty much having jobs in the industry uh, of cannabis here at this point, and more to come, obviously. Uh, David Belsky, who's the CEO of a recruitment firm, Flower Hire, uh, has research on his end that suggests 80% of cannabis job demands are happening outside of California for a change. And where I work uh, as an instructor, the Cleveland School of Cannabis alone has a 65% job placement rate for their graduates. So full disclosure, I am an instructor there once again, and um, also working with the Harrington Institute, an online learning platform for cannabis. Uh, the service industry can't hold a hemp wick to the cannabis industry when it comes to job growth, right? I mean, Heather, we'll start with you. How much of this is people quitting their jobs because they want to make some money or more money, that is, versus simply wanting to work in the cannabis industry at any cost? So uh, it's 
funny you should say this. So I think that here's my experience when it comes to cannabis jobs. Uh, there was a time where folks would come into the cannabis industry and you would come into the industry and you would actually um, generally take a pay cut. Uh, to come into the industry. You're trying to get your feet in the door. Uh, the industry itself wasn't pulling a lot of people from more traditional backgrounds. Um, so there were the um, folks like Chris and Ben, the entrepreneurs, who obviously entrepreneurial mindset, you're going to jump on to... Uh, you're going to jump on to like the, the next new thing. So the first adopters, so to speak. Then there's people like me that was lucky enough to have the opportunity to take that pay cut for a little while in order to then push myself forward in the industry and meet and exceed where I was in my, in my prior career. And then you've got uh, new entrants or, um, what I would consider to be like frontline employees. Um, that's, you know, where we're pulling a lot of frontline employees from more traditional businesses. And now frontline employees coming into cannabis from other retail or manufacturing or, um, you know, I guess from retail and manufacturing jobs, particularly, um, they're coming into the industry at salaries that are as good, if not a little bit better than what they were doing before. I think what's yet to be determined, we started to see it a little bit in like 2018, 20, uh, 2017 to 2019, uh, where we were bringing in talent. Uh, so executive level talent, and we were actually pulling from other industries. I think that one of the things that we did see with, um, with the, with the co with COVID and, um, since that time, I don't see as much of that. So I'm not seeing as much of the great resignation happening where folks are resigning and coming into the cannabis industry. What I'm seeing actually, when it comes to the great res resignation is more of a burnout situation in the industry where people are um, people who have been doing it for a while. Look, this industry, this is the hardest job I've ever had the, working in this industry. And I think that I've heard Ben say something similar to that. I think I've heard Chris say something similar to that. And I'm guessing, Brian, you would kind of follow in the same mindset that this is, this is you have to have a certain desire in this space. Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to love cannabis and it doesn't mean that you have to be an advocate, although we would prefer that you are. Um, but what it does mean is that you have to have the desire to work harder than you've ever worked in your entire life um, and be okay with lack of clarity around things like federal uh, legalization or, you know, 280E tax. You have to be innovative. So I actually saw a number of people in the industry leaving the industry this year. Um, now, hiring is up as a whole, but the great resignation did impact cannabis as well. So I would argue, you know, don't say it didn't impact us. I think it just impacted us in a different in a different way. Oh, yeah, I think uh, they're they're saying that uh the cannabis in, in this article, the cannabis industry isn't immune to it, but definitely still had uh, higher trends than than most uh, industries for sure. But yeah, I totally agree um, with everything you said there uh, regarding 
you know, where people are going, what people want to do with their careers. Um, the people who I run into at the the school who want to get their, their you know, job training here at Cleveland, uh, they are anywhere from 18 to 80 years old, right? So we can literally have someone coming out of high school, wanting to get in an industry, have to wait three years, obviously, uh, in most places, but in a lot of places, all places. Uh, and, you know, then you have the retiree for example, who wants to, you know, just do something that they are passionate about and make a little income and it doesn't really matter to them. Um, but yeah, I, I, great point about, um, you know, the, the people take pay cuts a lot of times to be in this industry because they know it's worth it. And, and I think the cannabis industry has, has reinvigorated a lot of people's interests in, in multiple fronts. You know, you look at stocks, you look at, you know, just <laughs> literature in general, just, just, you know, I feel like I read more now because I want to read about cannabis. Like I, I'm not a huge reader, but I like to read cannabis articles and cannabis books. And, you know, I'm, the, I'm reading, you know, obviously the emperor wears no clothes and you got uh, marijuana short history by John Hudak out of Brookings and so many good books out there that, that'll, that'll help us get a grasp on this. But yeah, um, cannabis don't, don't everybody quit at once, save some cannabis jobs for our students. Um, <laughs> Ben, what are your thoughts on, on the great resignation as it relates to cannabis? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting time. I I think um, a lot of it is, uh, I mean, like Heather said, is, is the cannabis industry isn't immune to the trends of the Great Resignation, and and what we're seeing, uh, it could probably be broken up into different tranches of of people, right? Like if you have the younger generation, it isn't about the money; it's about doing something that they they care for and that's mission driven and. And I think they realize that really quickly and they don't want to be a part of a corporate machine that is just, you know, profit focused. And so, you know, the great thing about the cannabis industry is when you decide to get in, it's it's mission driven from a personal uh, front, typically, you know, from the onset. Right. And so it's our job as as leaders of companies to really give them kind of a greater depth of why they're they're going to be, you know, working for for you. Right. And so having a strong brand foundation, having a strong mission and vision, like that's all super important. And I will say that not every great, uh, or not every cannabis operator is great at establishing that, especially a lot of these, these brands that are in the market. Right. Um, I, I think I've heard criticism over, over like the recent hall of flowers events, you know, just so many brands, flashy packaging, but you're not really sure where the, the flower or the oil is coming from. And you're not sure what the brand stands for. And so if you're, if you're guilty of that, then yeah, you, you probably have a strong chance of, of churning employees, but you know, I, I know we're a sample of one, but like at Vertosa, we all know what we really stand for and what we're fighting for. And we've had very little, uh, resignation. And so really excited to kind of be a part of that statistic of, you know, job openings and, and, and not churning people, uh, to the pandemic. Um, the other thing is like, you know, the burnout, it's real, you know, it's, it's been a hard period, period. Um, but just being in the cannabis industry, you, you just have a lot more on your plate than a typical, you know, say software business owner, owner, right? Like you're not having to monitor the laws constantly or, or find workarounds to get into other markets or, you know, have your employees' personal bank accounts shut down like happened to us recently. Like it's, 
you know, it's it, the all those externalities just add to a 40 hour week and make it frankly an 80 hour week uh, many times. And so I think that's the, the most unfortunate thing is it's hard to be in this industry. And, and Heather's right. There's probably some attrition this year, this past year to people that are just sick of it because they, you know, you know, going to back to their first segment, they, they don't see a ton of traction that's, that's happening uh, even with a fully democratic controlled you know, administration. And so uh, patience and persistence, I guess, is, is my theme. But um, yeah, it, I, I'm feeling pretty positive about the industry still. Uh, and so I'm not going anywhere. And hopefully none of my employees are. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, keep them, keep them paid, man. Keep them happy. And- <laughs> We're trying, man. We're trying. <laughs> you know, Chris, you want to chime in on that? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with 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 everyone saying, and I don't, I don't, like, I don't think this industry is immune from it at all. And I, like, I mean, I guess I'm a little bit biased considering that I, I quit my job in the last six months. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm quite a part of that great resignation. Although, you know, now I have like six different cannabis jobs, so um, not really. <laughs> um, but no, but but look, for, on a personal note, that was a fa- like some of the the things that we've been talking about here. And that we see as these factors in resignations in whether it's cannabis or elsewhere, I mean, was one of the factors in why I chose to leave Forefront when I did. Um, right. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't an acrimonious departure right, by any means. And I'm still I'm still consulting to the company. So you know, it left on good terms. But, you know, during the pandemic or, or when the pandemic started, I went from spending about 10 years with the company uh, traveling every week, right? I was on a plane basically every week, right? American Airlines, executive platinum status, right? All that, um, right? Going to, whether it was for business development opportunities or going to have to like visit facilities or any, all the myriad of, of speaking engagements and everything else. Um, and when the pandemic hit, right, that just stopped all of a sudden. And I had not in the past decade had a, you know, time to actually stop and think, and like consider alternatives. It was just go, 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 go for so long, building the company and doing everything you need to do to, to, to do that. Um, and I went from, you know, being on a plane every week to not flying for over a year. Um, and, you know, getting to, you know, we homeschooled our kids. I went and like, you know, we drove to like remote parts of the country and lived in, you know, lived in you know, random parts of the country for, you know, a few weeks at a time um, because all my work, all the, you know, those, those times I was supposed to be on a plane, all of a sudden all that was on Zoom. And as, you know, as we started sort of coming out of the pandemic, um, it kind of dawned on me that like, I, I don't, I don't want to go back to the schedule that I had before this, um, right? I've been running so hard for 10 years that I just spent more time with my kids in the past year than I have since they were born. Um, and, you know, I don't really want to go back to that. And, you know, thankfully I was in a position where I knew I could leave that, you know, full-time run really hard corporate job and, you know, and be okay and, and be able to do some freelance stuff for a while and, and make my own schedule. Um, and, you know, I never, if it, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I wouldn't have thought about it. Right. Like I wouldn't have, like that, that, that being an option wasn't something that I would have even had the, you know, the time or the inclination to consider. And it became something that I decided I really wanted to do. So I personally have not been immune to the factor, to those factors, but on a, you know, on a, on a, you know, on a more micro level, we are seeing it in the industry. Uh, I don't think we're seeing it in this industry compared to what we're seeing in industries at large. I agree with, with, with my colleagues here on that fact. Um, 
but we're not immune to it either, um, right? I mean, we're not seeing it at the same level because you know, cannabis jobs tend to pay better for one, um, right? Like this industry is really hard. It's especially hard for entrepreneurs in the industry, right? Less so, I think, for your day-to-day -day workers, right? Compared to being a day-to-day -day worker somewhere else, right? If you're a bud tender at a, at, a, at, a, you know, at a cannabis dispensary in Illinois or in Ohio or in California or wherever, right? And your alternative is working at the Gap or working at Old Navy or working at Chipotle or, um, you know, or any other retail environment, like you're probably pretty damn happy being at your dispensary, that you're getting paid better. You probably have better benefits. You're around weed all day. It's a lot more fun than like, you know, being around, you know, beans and rice all day, um, and tortillas, right? Um, I mean, not for everybody, but for, you know, for most. Um, so, you know, so we're, so, so we have that built in factor working for us. But still, I mean, we've seen it. My, my brother was quoted, right, uh, uh, you know, plug alert. Uh, there was an article, uh, there, this article in MJ Biz Daily a, a, a week or so ago about the Great Resignation. And my brother, who's running Forefront's uh, production facility in Commerce, California, outside of L.A., right, this is massive uh, production facility out there, like, they've been having a hard time hiring. And, you know, we, we, we paid well to start and, you know, we're paying better now because it's been hard to find employees. But I mean, he was even quoted in the article saying uh, or, or saying how, you know, they, they resorted to placing flyers, seeking workers on parked cars in nearby processing plants and nearby food courts. Right. Just flyering, saying, hope, hoping they're going to find somebody that's burnt out at their job working at Xerox um, or, you know, or a nearby processing plant and would rather come operate machinery that produces cannabis gummies. Um, so, you know, some of the things that you're seeing from, you know, large scale manufacturers and other industries, we are starting to see that in the cannabis industry. And, you know, we need to do better in terms of how we take care of our employees and make sure that these are, you know, these are places where people with those skill sets really want to come and work. Well said. And uh, here, here, I definitely uh, agree so moving to our next article in this segment is a story out of Maine's uh, Portland Press Herald. And we have Megan Gray to thank here for this contribution. In 2020, Maine, the state of Maine, agreed to remove the original residency requirements for adult use cannabis retailers after a case in which a large cannabis operator sued to challenge rulings in both adult use and medical markets. So there is a pending appeals court decision that could be very crucial to what may happen uh, in future decisions concerning federal cannabis policy. So we look at job fronts. Now we're looking at a decision that could change, you know, the way the nation sort of views, uh, you know, the cannabis industry and how that interstate commerce or lack thereof uh, can be affected as well. This this was a pretty interesting piece that I, I um, end up reading. But Heather, what are the advantages uh, and or disadvantages of residency requirements for those who want to operate in a particular state? We talk about entrepreneurs, right? And how can Maine's decision here in this appeals court set the tone for future federal law reform? So this is a topic that I know quite a bit about. Um, I actually just recently did a presentation to my own internal legal team on this topic. So I've just recently um, been kind of putting my, uh, been just recently been looking at residency requirements across the country. So personal opinion here, uh, two things. One, I think this case in Maine will likely be the determining factor on whether or not residency requirements 
are considered constitutional or not. Um, I, over time, what we've seen is that residency requirements have actually fallen by the wayside. So new, um, new programs that are opening up generally aren't having residency requirements in them. Uh, there are lots of lawsuits all throughout the country about residency requirements. We've seen residency requirements be reversed in a number of states as well. So I think this is actually something that is on the wane that we're going to start seeing. And as soon as we get federal legalization, um, it's pretty clear that residency requirements are definitely unconstitutional. Right now, the argument for residents for keeping residency requirements generally revolves around the uh, cannabis is illegal in the United States. Therefore, it's inherently it, it, you don't have to follow the Constitution because it, inherently it's illegal. And therefore, you don't have to you know, you don't have to. It's not unconstitutional because it's completely illegal from the federal perspective anyway. Uh so those, those are the arguments that, so anytime a residency issue is resolved in favor of maintaining a residency requirement, that is generally the argument that is, that is the winning argument on that side. Uh, now, I will say that I don't expect this case to resolve until the fall. So I think we've got a ways to go before we see what will ultimately, um, what the decision actually will be made by the appeals court. Um, and I think there's a possibility that after appeals court, it actually goes up to the next level. And it's plausible that we could see a cannabis case. It's now This is plausible. I'm not saying it's likely, but that we could see this case roll up to the Supreme Court before we actually see federal legalization. But I will say that the case law underlying um, the fact that fed that residency requirements are illegal in every other industry except cannabis, because that's a that's a Supreme Court decided issue that there's there's no more question that residency requirements in any other space are illegal. Um, I think ultimately that we're going to see that follow through with cannabis. But I would love to hear our fellow guests' opinion on this topic. Me too. Ben, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I, I, I think, you know, less is more for me, typically. Um, so I would just say, like, I don't know. I, I have a big question around whether the objective is to create a thriving industry that employs a lot of people or to ensure that a few lucky business owners, you know, make some wealth for them for, for themselves and their future generations, right? And so when approaching it like this, you know, I, I think again, outside of the cannabis industry, in the tech industry, we, we've certainly benefited from, you know, uh, people that aren't residents coming and building businesses and building successful businesses and employing a lot of people, right? And transfer of knowledge and all that kind of stuff. And if we take that to the to the states, like why not have that that cross pollination of businesses and entrepreneurs like from state to state? You know, it's like for me, you know, I think I run a pretty um, ethical and and you know moral business, and why shouldn't I be able to grow and scale my business to another state, right? And uh, it's unfortunate that rules like this would kind of prevent that because it is hard to grow a, a business of substance 
within a single state, especially one smaller than that of California, right? And so providing people other opportunities to grow and scale um, just from a, you know, a capitalistic perspective is, is kind of, you know, necessary. And, and frankly, you could, the general public could benefit from it. You know, you know, larger businesses are able to provide, create more resources for creating, you know, hopefully safer and more consistent products um, that, that, you know, go under greater, you know, lab testing scrutiny and all that and have a lot more uh, focus on, on clean ingredients. Not saying that small businesses can't. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just saying like it, it just becomes so complicated when you're restricting it and it leads to a lot of lawsuits, as, as Heather said. So, um, yeah, for me, less is more. For sure. Not to mention that your state has enough weed to supply any state that wants to legalize at any point. Like it, it would be great. <laughs> If you know, there's enough weed in California and Oregon alone to supply the whole country. We we do and arguably are <laughs> right, right, right yeah. off the books. <laughs> yeah, I but, wouldn't say yeah, arguably. Off the books for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how does yeah. this uh, sit with you, Chris? Uh, you know, what do you think this uh, the implications of this decision may have on on the industry at large? I mean, look, I'm 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 maybe a little less optimistic than Heather about this reaching the Supreme Court, um, but I but I but I do I mean I do I mean I agree with the pan, with everyone else on the panel here. I've I've long advocated that residency requirements are not only unnecessary but likely unconstitutional. Um, and, and I mean, and I think we're at the point now where anything that we can do to break down the state barriers that exist in this industry is a good thing. Um, it's really hard on business operators, right, large and small alike, to scale your business if you're you know, in one state and you want to go into another state and the rules in that other state are different and the licensing requirements in that state are different, or even if they're very similar, that you have to just rebuild your entire infrastructure every time you go into a new state. It's, it's cost prohibitive. Um, you know, these residency requirements lead to all kinds of weird workarounds um, that are unnecessary, right? So a company that might just want to go into another state in order to bring their, their popular product into a new state, they've now got to do it through a licensing agreement um, with, an, with somebody who is licensed in that state because they can't get a license there. And um, yes, they can get the brand in the market, but they don't have the same control over the production of it, the same quality control and a license agreement that you're going to have if you're operating on your own. Um, so, you know... All of this stuff, whether it's whether it's residency requirements, whether it's interstate commerce, whether it's you know federal legalization, uh, like we need to be moving towards making this a national industry and get rid of this you know state siloed you know fifty individual state industries because it's just not how we do anything else in this country, um, and it's and and we're not gonna you know you're not gonna have true national companies or national brands until in, you know until these walls come down, and it does it does feel like that. The longer, like the the more of these walls we put up now, is the more painful the inevitability is going to be, right? Like if if we all agree that cross state commerce in some form is inevitable, the longer we push that out, and the more of these barriers that we put in place now is that it's going to be that much more painful and harder to weave it all back together. No doubt. Even the lawmakers recognize, you know, it's naive to think that people aren't getting weed from other places and bringing it back. It's like it literally happens every day. It's happening right now as we speak. Uh, that's the end of segment two. I think we can put a pin in it there. But we'll be right back with a marijuana moment. Double header. But first. 
to the man who makes us all sound better. What up, Shay? This week, we're glad to have the support of our friends over at The Atlantic Farms of Portland, Maine, which is known around town for their unique medical marijuana dispensary slash gas station, where you can fuel up on all the things you need to get down life's road. Pop over to theatlanticfarms.com today to browse their extensive menu of top-notch Maine marijuana products, all available at hugely affordable prices. That's theatlanticfarms.com. If you do stop in, tell them I said hello. The last two articles I'd like to discuss are both written by Marijuana Moments' Kyle Yeager. So in the first piece, Kyle is explaining that the DEA has finally ended a decades-long monopoly on cannabis research. Woohoo! And recently they've authorized a number of companies to grow marijuana to study. So traditionally we would have to rely on... Uh, you know, the dirt weed from the University of Mississippi, right? Everybody knows, everybody on the show knows the quality of that bud. We know it's not even suitable to even call that research. Uh, you know, I don't think they have exceeded 20% THC for a long time. Uh, they've, they've, they've based their potency model after seizures, uh, and that's money or cannabis being seized on the streets so they would take dirt literal dirt weed on the streets and, and uh, try to replicate that uh, in this program for years several decades in fact and um, a lot of uh, folks actually benefit from the well in the beginning they began benefited from this uh you know big tin of pre-rolled cannabis dirt weed joints that were sent to their door uh courtesy of the federal tax dollar and um, there's still a couple folks still alive. I believe Elvi Musica and uh, Irv Rosenfeld uh, still use their their, their cannabis. So Elvi's no, Elvi's out of the program. She's still alive, but oh. she 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 opted out in the last. I think it was in the last like year or two, because oh, wow. because the, because because the cannabis is so bad um, that she she would rather have to pay a little bit to buy really good weed in Oregon than than smoke the crap that the federal government sends her. So Irv Rosenfeld is the only patient still alive in that compassionate IND program. Interesting. Yeah. So there you have it. That that proves my point that this weed is bad. <laughs> uh, we call that Sir Reginald, where I'm from. Uh, some of that Reggie. So it appears that Groff North American Hemplex and Biopharmaceutical Research Company, um, two weird names for these groups, but but long names too, are the two groups first to harvest under this new research program. So now we don't have to rely on NIDA's contract with the University of Mississippi. Um, and while this isn't exactly what Biden promised to address during, you know, for cannabis law reform during his campaign, uh, however, this is a positive step toward better results because guess what there ain't enough research so i guess maybe we can get some good research now um when you know despite the ten thousand plus independent studies that exist um ben 
considering the 1970 Controlled Substances Act, um, is the decision to allow additional cannabis growers for research purposes enough to convince the DEA to reschedule or, more appropriately, deschedule marijuana? No, <laughs> uh, no, I don't. You know, un unless you give uh, the DEA that you know an entirely new drug that has hit the streets that is as prolific and easy to produce as marijuana, I don't think you're going to have the DEA quick. Uh, to create job instability in their own ranks. So that's where I stand on that. And I think that's their major motivators to keeping uh, cannabis in, is the schedule one drug that it is. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I again, my, my cynicism for, for our federal government is, is, is showing. Um, I, you know, stuff like this, I, I, I'm just like, they're, they're so slow and moving so far behind the times. You know, when I think about you know, we're an ingredient business. And when I want to think about getting the cleanest, most controlled products, you know, I don't limit myself to a few producers that are probably have, you know, my hands in their pockets and or vice versa. And so, you know, like, they need to realize how they need to do the homework to realize how sophisticated the industry is and just open themselves up to the same market that I have access to. You know what? I, I want isolates of whether it's TAC, CBD or minor cannabinoids, I can get them and I, I shop around to make sure that I'm getting the best product and you can, you know what? Oh, there's labs that you can go get it tested at so that you're making sure that it's safe and consistent. You can do the exact same for, you know, high purity distillates or full spectrum extracts or, you know, biosynthesized or chemically synthesized, you know, can cannabinoids. And for them to be like, oh, we're, we're going to, you know, now draw from a couple other farms that have really whack names. Um, you know, it's like, just, just call up your, your favorite California dealer. He'll ship you some high quality weed, right? It's just like, this is ridiculous. I, I don't think it's going to change anything for the DEA until, until someone's holding their feet to the fire and saying, oh, we've actually changed the federal law, so now, you know, get with the program. Do what LV did, right? Jeez, just get, call your dude and call it a day. <laughs> Chris, please please elaborate on where, where, where this is going and how much longer do we have to, before the federal government, you know, just leaves us alone or helps us to some degree? Uh, I mean, I wish I had, I wish I knew, um, <laughs> uh, there's no, you know, there's not, there's not a good answer to that right now. I, I will say like, uh, while I agree with all the, the cynicism and, and skepticism here, especially when it comes to the DEA, I mean, fuck those guys. Um, they're, they're like, they're never going to do anything to try and put themselves out of business. Like that's literally their, their mandate. Um, but like, this is a big improvement. Um, you know, you talked about, the you know how bad the the quality of the product at the University of Mississippi is, and that's it's true. I've seen it uh, back when I was at Normal uh, in the in the early in the in the well in the two, not early two thousands in the two thousands. Um, Irv Rosenfeld every year at our conference used to donate uh, his tin, one of his tins that he would get this tin every month with three hundred pre rolled joints um, that the federal government sent to him. Um, so I've seen it um, now. To Irv's credit, Irv never let anybody hit his joints, um, so I can't say I've tried it. Um, he was very uh, Irv was very cautious, um, right, to make sure that uh, you know he didn't jeopardize his his standing in the program. Um, but I've seen him. Uh, and, uh, and, and I've certainly seen those tins and, and it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty garbage. Um, 
Imagine going to jail for letting somebody hit your dirt weed joint, though. I don't like think he was so. Wor- I don't think he was so worried about going to jail. I think he was more worried about the federal government cutting off his his dirt uh. weed um, <laughs> for, for for sharing it. Well, because look, I mean, especially back then in the early two thousands, right? There were no legal states, right? There were some legal me- some legal medical places, but not in Florida where Irv lives. And Irv, I mean, Irv needs to smoke multiple joints a day, or he's in like indescribably uh, difficult pain. Um, So he wasn't going to do anything to jeopardize that. Um, I do have some fun Irv, Irv Rosenfeld stories, but I'll uh, I'll save those for another day. Um, uh, just him him you know smoking at in, in Congress um, back in the day. Uh, he uh, when, when we we had a lobby day back at at, at Normal, and he was uh, he sent a letter to the to to the Capitol Police saying he was going to be bringing his medicine into the Capitol with him, and they sent him back something saying you're not allowed to do that. Um, so he he. He caused a stink and, and actually got the general counsel for the Capitol Police to send him a letter saying you are allowed to bring your medicine into the Capitol. I mean, it's like you guys sent it to me, right? Like this is this was from the federal government. Um, and so he's in the I think it was in the I think it's the Rayburn House office building, the one that has the huge courtyard in the middle of it at lunchtime with all these Hill staffers. This was like 2002, 2003. Uh and he's just sitting there smoking a joint in the court in the courtyard of Rayburn with all these hill staffers sitting out there eating their lunch, because um, uh, it's you know it was the weed that they sent him, um, right? But these staffers had no idea. Um, so yes, I mean the, the quality is really bad. The, the one you know one interesting sort of side note on this about the quality, um, and it's a point that I heard uh, a, you know, a friend of the show and a former panelist here, uh, Jehan, Dr. Jehan Marku, make um, not that long ago was that the one positive that did come from the University of Mississippi is that while the quality was really poor, it was very consistent. Like it was consistently bad, but it was consistent. And from a research standpoint, knowing that all researchers are using the same quality product and they have a consistent product, right, is actually good for research point uh, research purposes. The quality being bad was not, but um, at least there was a consistency issue there that that you know, they are going to have to work through now. But we now have real growers growing cannabis. Um, and making it available to researchers that was not available in the years prior, that's a huge benefit. And I think that's going to help advance this issue, um, you know, not necessarily from the DEA, but other aspects of the federal government. I have been... The, the, the area I've been really impressed with of late is just NIDA as a whole, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, um, and how much they've moved in favor of research. I mean, NIDA back when I was at, when I was at Normal, I mean, they were staunch opponents um you know and, and basically said if you wanted to do any research on cannabis right you could only do it if you intended to prove cannabis's harms and they've changed their tune on that and nora volkow to her credit i mean she's doing ethan nadelman's podcast now um, i heard yeah, yeah psychoactive I mean, it's worth a listen if yeah for folks who haven't listened to that mm-hmm. episode of nora nora being interviewed nora, nora volkow being interviewed by ethan nadelman on the psychoactive podcast it's fascinating i mean she sounds like a harm reductionist and I don't know whether that's just a reflection of the times. Um, I don't know if her views have changed um, or if she always held these views, but just felt she couldn't speak to them uh, because it wouldn't have been politically acceptable in the past. But things have moved. I doubt it's because, you know, it's because Biden and Biden's not good on this issue. Um, but the Biden administration, right, there are a lot of a lot of people who are much better on this issue than there had been in you know, prior administrations. But to see somebody like Nora Volko, who had been like a stalwart in the prohibition establishment, come out and speak in favor of things like harm reduction and talk about the you know, benefits to studying psychedelic medicine. Um, I mean, that's it's a real sea change uh, at the federal level when it comes to views on cannabis uh, for research and research purposes. 
totally agree. Yeah, and I caught that episode too. And to your point on on the um, by the way, uh, the Cleveland School of Cannabis has an Irv Rosenfeld tin as well in our possession, autographed. So that's pretty cool. How he came through to visit us when we first opened in 2017. And um, you go all the way back to the 80s, right? When Marinol was uh, the synthetic version of cannabis was being put out there. There were people in that program that still said even crude cannabis is still superior to synthetic, you know, as as bunk or as boof as it is, right? So well, people yeah. hate Marinol. I mean, that's just synthetic right. THC. You know, I mean, talk about right. no entourage effect, right? You know, right. you're not getting any no no terpenes, no you know, no, 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 no minor can- cannabinoids, no nothing. That's just that's just synthetic. Yeah. T- uh, I'll take a dirt weed yeah. joint over Marinol for sure. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Heather, um, what about you? Um, quality wise, do you think the with the quality improving? In this, uh, seemingly going to improve here uh, with this seed change. I love the pun there. Um, how do you think this is going to affect the studying or, or the um, the research uh, when we have better product to use? Well, I think we'll get better research, right? Um, Indeed. Just, uh, you know, in spite of the fact of what Chris just said in terms of, you know, a consistency issue, right? Um, I think we'll get better research. You know, that... It, Having had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Jehan Marku, friend of the show, um, I learned I have learned a lot about um, how much research there actually already has been done on cannabis. So you know we hear a lot lack of research, lack of research. It's not lack of research. It's lack of research that the federal government has said that we um, we agree with the with the manner and method in which you did your research. Um, not to say that the research that's being done is not exceptional research because it is, but I always go back to something I learned: uh, the commonly used ADHD drug Adderall. Um, that has been researched far less then cannabis has been researched. Uh, And yet, you know, Adderall or, you know, versions of Adderall are, you know, commonly prescribed not only to adults, but also to children. So, and, you know, to me, any expansion of the research program is good for us to have better information about the products that our industry is developing. But it's also fantastic for cannabis in general because... The more research that gets done, the more reporting that happens on that research, and the more it gets into the public eye that research actually does exist. Certainly. And I'm hoping it's not going to be as biased as what we've been seeing uh, through that program over the, the 50 or so years. Uh, good stuff, y'all. Um, moving on to our second marijuana moment news story in uh, final for this segment here. Kyle Yeager describes to readers that the designated funds from California officials meant to assist local business development for the cannabis industry is uh, popping off in that state, apparently. So there are three main reasons why the state is allocating funding here, according to the article, uh, to help with staffing, uh, IT systems, and clean energy, among other things. Well, among other things that will be uh, affected by uh, implementing these strategies. But cities allocating funds for improvements in the state of California are uh, include Long Beach, Los Angeles, San Francisco. There's going to be $100 million being put on the table 
and I'm glad to see that this is government money uh, being put into our industry for a change instead of um, what they can take from us. So uh, to round us out here, Ben, this is your neck of the woods. Can you elaborate on the importance of a move like this? Uh, or is this just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to you know, government support to local business? Um, <laughs> I'm trying not to sound like a broken record, but, you know, I, I wouldn't even say it's government money uh, coming into the industry. It's uh, maybe some of the money that we gave to the government being handed back to us and them taking credit for giving us money. Um, you know, I would rather hear them uh, cut $100 million worth of taxes that they're taking from from the industry. I think that would go a lot further. Um because, you know, I, when, when the government dedicates, say, $100 million, you know, how much does that actually end up, you know, hitting the street, right? How much gets filtered out in the administration of that $100 million? And so, uh, yeah, I mean, you're going to take, if you're taking, call it $1.2 billion out of the industry in the form of taxes, you know, what are you using those taxes for? How is that benefiting the industry? Maybe you shouldn't just, maybe you should just focus on not taking so many taxes from us. Uh, maybe that'd be easier to run, uh, run businesses in this industry. That said, yeah, I guess it's always a good sign uh, when you're dedicating uh, money uh, to, to helping out, helping create a better industry. Um, I, I guess, you know, I have a lot of questions around those vehicles, you know, how, how are those actually going to end up getting filtered down and, and benefiting the industry? Or is it just, um, you know, my, my, again, my cynicism and fear is that it's, uh, it's too broadly defined and that anything, any actions that are going to be taken here on out can be justified as, you know, being attributable to that hundred million dollars. So, um, we'll see, we'll see. Uh, you know, I, I feel like we've earned the, the place uh, right now in California where, uh, you know, uh, actions, actions are, are stronger than words. And so I want, I want to see more action taken by our, our, our the new, newly formed DCC and, and the governor. No doubt. And I know you're going to be putting pressure on them down there, right? Absolutely. So we, Absolutely. We, we got you. <laughs> Basically, what's happening here is they're... They're trying to generate funds, um, from what I understand, for the state of California to enhance cannabis businesses. Uh, so we're looking at things like IT development and you know better staffing and so on and so forth. Um, I don't know. Does this become a trend, or th is this something that we think is uh, necessary moving forward? I mean, how, how do we how do we keep generating this this type of funds? And um, you know, cynicism aside, is it? Is it coming from us or is it actually coming from the government? Uh, Chris, what do you think about this whole thing? Uh, well, it's coming from the it's coming from the businesses, right? I mean, I, I tend to agree with Ben. If you can, like, I I, I would rather the businesses be able to keep more of their keep more of that money in order to reinvest in their businesses. Um, you know, like I, I I can I can hire an IT company 
to set up really good IT for my for my company. I don't need the government to spend my tax dollars in order to create an IT program for the cannabis industry. Um, so, I mean, it really depends on what they're doing with it, right? If they're taking, I would much rather they take those tax dollars and put them into a fund uh, to you know to invest in uh, you know minority owned social equity businesses that have an insanely difficult time uh, raising capital uh, these days than in you know than to put it into something like an IT program for a cannabis business that probably really doesn't need it and you know there are private companies out there that that do really you know do really good work on the IT side of things like a lot of what they're trying to solve I think it's just I worry a little bit that they're trying to they're trying to solve for problems that don't really exist. Um, within the cannabis industry when like, and look, I'm not a, a, a hardcore capitalist, but like these are the kind of issues that largely can be solved by private business. Um, and I don't think the government needs to be, you know, trying to find ways to make our lives easier as businesses by taking more of our tax dollars. I'd rather they let us keep those tax dollars and reinvest it and come up with those solutions on our own. Um, and if they are going to take those tax dollars, and clearly they are, um, I would rather they go to, you know, writing historical injustices around the drug war. Um, and yeah, I recognize that, uh, you know, we have not done a great job, um, with social equity programs by and large, but a lot of that has to do with lack of available funding uh, for black and brown owned uh, black and brown owned businesses and black and brown business owners. Um, and if we can, you know, create, I mean, this is something that I think Illinois has tried to do. And ultimately I think it, 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 Illinois will be looked at as, a success if they can just get their damn licensing program done right. Um, but they are taking a lot of the tax dollars that are being generated from these cannabis businesses and putting them into funds to then reinvest in uh, black and brown owned uh, cannabis businesses. And that's a real issue, right? Like that's a real problem in the industry at where there isn't a, there isn't really much of a non-governmental solution. Um, right. I mean, it, it's been years now. There are states all around the country that are licensing social equity businesses. And you would think that you would see like a cottage industry spring up of investment funds investing in those businesses. And that just has not happened. Um, and, you know, without you know, without safe banking or just banking reform in general at the federal level. And this is where I get very frustrated with um, groups like the Drug Policy Alliance, who I love and have been a supporter of for many, many years. Um, but the argument that, you know, passing banking reform is only going to benefit the you know, already wealthy white business owners is just not true. And it's why the Minority Cannabis Business Association, for example, has been so vocal and outspoken about the need to pass banking reform at the federal level because it's the small business owners and even more so the, you know, the, the black and brown business owners in cannabis that just cannot access capital in today's environment. And so this is something that governments can help fix. You know, state governments can't, state governments can do so, only do so much, right? They can, they can help, but they can't fix it. Um, but they can help and they should, right? Only Congress can fix this issue by making, you know, by making lending available from, in from, from lending institutions, um, you know, by allowing banks to do business with the sector, right? Congress can help do this. And by, you know, by gearing loans from the Small Business Administration to equity-owned businesses, right? There are a lot of things the federal government can do to, to really help this issue, but the states can make a difference. And if you're going to be spending our tax dollars on something, I'd much rather be going to something like this than, you know, creating new IT programs that, uh, you know, that, 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 that companies out there and you know, private companies out there in the space are already doing a pretty good job of. Well, you don't, yeah. I mean, there's great examples in the state of California where we have resorted to private companies funding 
you know, accelerator programs and investment vehicles for, you know, equity owned businesses. Like the Ease Momentum program is a great example of giving entrepreneurs the support that they need. It's not IT. IT is sure at some point later on down the road when you get an actual business off the ground. But why would we trust the state of California to give us IT advice? Like metric has been so awesome. Right. I mean, <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I'm like, I don't want your IT advice. I, you know, it's like uh, what we would like is an accelerator program that does not only give you a license, but gives you the pathway to how to run like a successful business and how to access, you know, whether you need a distributor or retailers or kind of gives you that guidance. And it's, you know, it's, it's that final mile or final five miles that that the governments really need to start thinking about when they're thinking about equity programs. And yeah, a hundred million dollars could really benefit that. Definitely. And I, you know, you make me think about my neighborhood where I live here. I'm in Cleveland, but there, you know, it's a little community that pays for Wi-Fi so everyone can have Wi-Fi when they step outside and it's the worst it's the worst <laughs> Wi-Fi ever I can't ever get connected I'm always switching the data I'm like get this out of here you know my, my phone automatically jumps on it when I get in the car I'm like please don't do that like stop I hate this Wi-Fi so yeah you're absolutely right and I and I'm thanks for the clarification I was trying to figure out where this money was actually coming from in reading the article last night and I'm like man what this doesn't something doesn't seem right about this <laughs> so uh heather uh a hundred million dollars tax revenue what do you do with it that's that not these three things that they mentioned in the article what do you do with a hundred million dollars uh for for cannabis businesses if you had the chance Ooh, that is an excellent question uh so well First of all, I would um, put that funding towards ensuring that anyone who has cannabis convictions on their record, uh, that, that, that those records are expunged with very little to no uh, action needed by the person whose record is getting expunged. Um, I think the next thing I would probably do with that is I would um, do some low-cost loans uh, to social equity applicants. You know, it, it's it's not particularly sexy, but that's where I think the money needs to go right now. Um, you know, the other little pieces, you know, they, they almost feel like they are um, pet projects, I would say. So um, to me, it would be, um, well... I mean, with $100 million, I would probably actually run a campaign to lower the tax rate in the state of California. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if, I, if I had my way. <laughs> um, but no, I think that's, that's probably where I would, um, would want to focus that money. Absolutely. Some good stuff here, folks. And I think that's a good place to end segment three. It's time for Finishing Moves. Finishing Moves. Finishing Moves is the part of Marijuana Today where we talk about anything we want, cannabis-related or otherwise. Chris, please go first. What is your finishing move? Yeah, so for my finishing move today, um, I want to give a 
shout out and really just a, a giant thank you to Justin Streakle. Um, for those who don't know Justin, um, Justin has spent the last five years as the um, federal lobbyist for Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, uh, the organization I got my start with uh, professionally. Um, he was brought in by Eric Altieri uh, shortly after he was hired as the executive director there, and I think has been you know, widely recognized as someone who has sort of helped put normal back on the map at the federal level um, when it comes to federal lobbying. Um, he has done, I think, an incredibly good job of representing the um, uh, representing the movement on Capitol Hill. Um, something I think normal had you know not they hadn't really been part of the conversation as much as they should have been. And normal's voice is I think really important in this and that normal has always been. And I believe re remains really the voice of the cannabis consumer, right? Not the industry, um, not even the policy wonks, right? But really the, 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 the group that represents the consumer and Justin has gotten normal back, uh, you know, really back at the table, um, the way that they should be. Uh, he spent five years doing it. He's uh, somebody that I think has been respected by folks in both the movement and the industry, which is difficult, a uh, difficult mind to straddle. Um, and recently announced that he's uh, he's stepping away. Uh, he's going to be moving on to other things, doing some independent consulting. I know he's taking care of his uh, fa uh, father in um, uh, in Ohio uh, as well. So he's pretty pretty close to you, um, Brian. And uh, I just want to say uh, you know big big thank you to Justin for all of the work you've done on this issue, how you've helped advance the cause. Um, it's, it's been a benefit to all of us and, uh, and it deserves the recognition. And just to top that off, he is being replaced by Morgan Fox, um, who is leaving his role as communications director for the National Cannabis Industry Association. Um, but prior to this served for many years on at the marijuana policy project. Um, and, uh, boy, I mean, He's got some big shoes to fill, but Normal did a phenomenal job in hiring uh, Morgan to to step into that role. I know him well. Uh, I've known him for many, many years. Um, he is uh, Morgan is Morgan's been in this for a long time. He really cares. He knows the issue well, and so um, we're losing a we're losing a real asset to the industry, but um, uh, we're we're gaining another one in that role. And and Normal is going to be uh, Normal is going to be just fine because of it. Absolutely. The, thank you uh, for shouting out my Northeast Ohio brethren. Justin, I had a chance to meet him in 2016 when he first picked up that role right around that time uh, in, in D.C. for Lobby Day that year. So, yeah, shout out to Normal. Shout out to Justin and his future endeavors. And Morgan, you got this. Uh, Heather, Marijuana Nation wants to hear your finishing move. So my finishing move today is a piggyback on our second segment. I am letting folks know that uh, Curaleaf, my employer, is hiring a licensing associate. So a licensing associate, I'm very excited about this. So a licensing associate is someone that would actually be joining my team. So Marijuana Today listeners, if you are or know someone that uh, is comfortable taking on um, various responsibilities, uh, providing support, uh, has really good people skills, and then also add on to it exceptional organization and communication skills um, and some pretty decent 
document. I would consider it to be a documentation specialist role. Um, then shoot on over to our website over at careleaf.com. Check out under About Us Careers, and you will find the licensing associate's position. And let us know that you um, heard about the role through Marijuana Today. I'll be uh, paying attention to that, and I'll probably put a little more focus on those applicants that come through this channel. Ooh. You heard it here first, folks. Thanks, Heather. Thank you. Ben, you got next. What's your finishing move? Yeah, for my finishing move today, I, it was going to seem very random and not cannabis related, but I'm going to tie it back somehow. Um, so I, I sat down last night with my wife and, and we watched uh, the new Netflix movie, uh, Don't Look Up, uh, with Leo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, Kate Blanchett, like huge all-star cast. And I, I just loved it. It, it was so great. It kind of really spoke to a lot of my cynicism around government and how they make decisions. And really oftentimes, especially at the federal level, it's usually job security uh, that is is pushing a lot of the conversations and decision making. And so, you know, just something that's on the nose also kind of like pokes fun at, at our recent turmoil at the federal level with, you know, the, the prior administration. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a, a really good flick. And, you know, I'm trying to be more balanced in my life and get my head out of the business and cannabis a little bit more often. And so it was, it was good for that, but, you know, also just kind of, you know, for me really reminds me that a lot of the progress we're going to see is just like continued persistence and, and patience, especially at the local level. You know, I know Heather likes to really push the grassroots efforts a lot. So, you know, affecting where we can. And, and a lot of times in this industry, we have a greater chance at affecting a lot of change in our in our locales and making sure that we just create the best industry we can uh, for for where we operate. And yeah, and just having that percolate up and, and eventually we'll, we'll, we'll get what's due to us, um, you know, through a lot of hard work. And, you know, I just encourage people to be patient. And that's probably, you know, I, I'll save it for later episodes. I have a lot, a lot more to say. I was saying it at the end of last year, just like, you know, around a lot of these kind of uh, the, the hemp derived, call it gray space uh, that exists out there right now. Um, and I, I want to encourage any of the operators that think that they can cross over from uh, the regulated cannabis space and still be a good operator operating in the in the psychoactive hemp derived cannabinoids like be patient. We've come this far. Let, let's get it across the line and let's not threaten it with uh, some stupid cash grabs. Amen. Well, folks, for my finishing move, I want to, I guess, keep it on the cannabis topic a little bit as well. Um, like most of us here this year, the Harrington Institute for Cannabis Education is hosting faculty information se sessions uh, every last Tuesday of the month. So there's a faculty info session every last Tuesday of the month at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, another job call here. If you or someone you know is interested in working as a cannabis instructor, please feel free to email me your resume and or CV to Adams at HarringtonInstitute.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-A-D-A-M-S at HarringtonInstitute.com. So, yes, 
this is a, a good time. And despite the uh, great resignation, we're going to still try to get people employed through the cannabis industry. And um, thank you very much to our wonderful guests, Ben Larson, Heather Sullivan, Chris Crane. I also want to thank Shay Gunther for producing the show and special thanks to our sponsors for their support. Shout out to Overclock Remix for the music used in the show. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And always, always go quality over quantity. Peace out, Marijuana Nation. Have a dope marijuana today and an even doper marijuana tomorrow. One take, Shay. One take.